0: Welcome to the Bill Kelly podcast. I'm guest host Tad Michaels. Sounds like today will be the day the province will reveal its plan to introduce a vaccine passport system. What does the medical and business community want to hear from today's announcement? We hear from both. When schools start next week, how will teachers catch up their students after a year of lost learning? And the Liberals released their long-awaited platform today. What do Canadians need to hear from them to turn the polls around? The Bill Kelly podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Off the top, as you've been hearing on CHML News today, it sounds like today will be the day the province will reveal its plan to introduce a vaccine passport system. The premier will reportedly make the announcement at 1 o'clock this afternoon which will be carried live on CHML and CFPL. He'll be with Health Minister Christine Elliott and Chief Medical Officer Dr. Kieran Moore. We get more from Global Sandy Salerno.
1: According to the Toronto Sun, a proof of vaccination program in Ontario will begin in three weeks. This will come in two steps. The first part of it will kick in on September 23rd. A proof of vaccination will be needed for restaurants, bars, gyms, and other indoor settings, places where masks can't be worn at all times. For the first month, proof of vaccination will be the receipt a person gets when they get their COVID-19 shots, one you can also download from the government website if you misplaced yours, plus a piece of government-issued ID like a driver's license. Step two will involve the launch of a smartphone app similar to the one being used in Quebec and BC, which people can simply upload their information and show their screen proving their vaccination status. The province hopes to have that app ready to go by mid to late October. Sandy Salerno. Global News. Well,
0: joining us to talk about this for the next few minutes is our uh, first guest, Dr. Nathan Stahl. He's a physician in geriatrics and internal medicine uh, with the Sinai Health Center in Toronto. Dr. Stahl, first of all, thank you for joining us. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. So, uh, first of all, I'm sure uh, this is a question that I'm sure, doctor, everybody is asking if indeed the announcement is coming down at one o'clock this afternoon. This afternoon, people are wondering what took the premier so long to make this announcement.
2: Uh, well, I, I, I mean, I, I can't answer that. Right. Oh, yeah. uh, we've seen this happen, you know, in differing speeds across the country. Uh, you know, I would have preferred something like Quebec did, where they signaled earlier in the summer that they were going to implement the plan if cases started to rise, had the system ready to go. And, and you'll know that today is the day that actually Quebec uh, is actually activating their vaccine passport system you know now we're looking ahead it's not going to be until you know September 22nd a couple weeks after kids have gone back to school and universities cases will have already risen by then and and frankly uh, we're not going to have until October until we have that app ready so it is unfortunate that it's taken this long. Uh,
0: Dr. Stahl as we mentioned you are a physician in geriatrics and internal medicine Um, when you're uh, going about your daily duties do you find that there are still that there's still reticence from people about getting never mind their second vaccine
2: shot, but their first for whatever reason? Yes, absolutely. You know, I think one of the things we've done wrong is we've actually homogenized on vaccinated populations. You know, there are certainly still individuals out there that, you know, it may seem incredible to people, but do face, face barriers to access, whether it's cultural, financial, you know, lack of an opportunity to engage with the physician. We still need to do some of that high touch outreach work to reach these people to vaccinate them. Then there, of course, there are the, you know, staunch anti-vaxxers, uh, which we may not move even with the passport system. But there's another group of individuals, you know, uh, particularly among the 18 to 40-year-old crowd, that frankly don't have a lot of consequences to not being vaccinated, right? And, and they're driving this fourth wave. And this sort of system we've seen in British Columbia, we've seen it in Quebec, we've seen it in France, we've seen it in many places across the world that when you implement a system like this, it will, you know, nudge people to go get vaccinated. And I expect we're going to see an uptick in bookings in the next couple of days.
0: I would uh, suggest, doctor, that it is frustrating for you as a physician when you, um, as you say, you see somebody and you find out that they are a staunch anti-vaxxer and nothing that you do or persuade them or try to do will change their mind. It's got to be frustrating for
2: you. Yes, but, uh, you know, in medicine, we, you know, we need to approach each individual without judgment. We need to meet them with compassion, right? And we will look after everybody in our healthcare system, regardless of the personal choices they make. We will still try, uh, to, you know, explain to them and educate them and, and under, explain to them why this is good for their health, their family's health, as well as for all of society. Uh, But, yeah, it it, it can be frustrating, certainly.
0: Uh, Doctor, um, I'm wondering now, uh, as uh, we find out more from the Premier this afternoon, the news conference will be heard at 1 o'clock here on uh, CHML and also CFPL in London, uh, when the Premier announces uh, that the vaccine passports are coming. uh, I'm asking you to put on your soothsayer hat here. And, of course, nobody can predict what's going on because COVID changes things sometimes on a daily or hourly basis. Um, How... Far down the road, do you see us continuing to do the masking thing? I'm not talking about the vaccin- vaccination passport here, per se, but just uh, from um, going down the road, of uh, masks generally seem to be working. People are wearing them. How much longer do you think we'll be doing that?
2: Well, you know, I-, I think in general, we will probably be a society and a culture that masks more than we ever did, right? And that's, you know, something that, you know, the Asian countries have done for several years. Now, how long we have a mask mandate in indoor settings for, uh, you know, I think you know, we've seen in the United States that they prematurely removed that. And with the Delta variant, uh, that kind of bit them. So uh, I think probably we're not going to be looking at lifting indoor mask mandates until sometime until next spring or summer, when hopefully, you know, uh, we have, uh, you know, a pandemic that's much more under control but I think overall, you know, particularly during the winter season, you're going to see many more people masked for years to come, not not by mandate, but by choice, but by individual choice themselves.
0: Doctor, can you uh, touch on, and, and we've heard about uh, the fourth wave and the Delta variant, and some of the experts are saying that, you know, the this coming fall and winter could be uh, rather bleak. Uh, do you kind of share that opinion? Because a lot of us will be, well, most of us will be indoors as opposed to getting a chance to go outside and get some fresh air?
2: Yeah, unfortunately, it it just possibly, it can't possibly as be as good as the summer, right? We saw this last fall as well. And it's not just indoor. It's the fact that our contacts and our mobility goes up and our interactions go up as people return to work. Some people are returning to office, as kids return to school, as kids return to university. And, you know, now that we've had delays in things like a vaccine certificate and and implementing things like mandatory vaccine for education workers, we're going to see cases rise. Uh, we know that's going to happen. The question is, can we mitigate it enough so that we're not, you know, needing to resort to more blunter public health measures like closing sectors of the economy? And so that it's not impacting our health care system where we're delaying care. We're already seeing that in Alberta where they're starting to have to cut back on elective surgeries. That's disastrous if we need to do that again in Ontario.
0: Dr. Nathan Stahl from uh, the Ontario uh, with uh, Sinai Health, the physician in geriatrics and internal medicine. Uh, thank you for uh, an update. And uh, kind of we're all looking forward to seeing what the premier has to say at one o'clock this afternoon. Stay well. Thank you for joining us. Much appreciated.
2: Thank you. Have a great
0: day. Now, let's uh, switch tact and talk about uh, what this policy will do for uh, business in Ontario. Joining us, the Vice President of Policy with the Ontario Chamber of Commerce, Daniel Savagnani. Daniel, first of all, thank you for joining us. And uh, how is my colleague and my paizan, Rocco Rossi? Is he doing well?
1: Hi, Ted. Thanks for having me on. And Rocco is doing great. <laughs> he says hello. Uh, he's taken a few days of a badly needed yep. uh, and well-deserved vacation.
0: Well, I know that he's a rather ebullient man, is he not? <laughs> he
1: is, and if you're looking for updates on how he's doing, uh, I, I believe Twitter, I, I believe Twitter has some uh, uh, updates on uh, on where he's at.
0: I would suspect wine is a part of that, but we move on. Okay, Daniel, uh, first question for you, if indeed the Premier is going to announce what we think he's going to announce today at 1 o'clock. From the Chamber of Commerce standpoint, is the question, what took so long to get this started?
1: From our perspective, it's better late than never, and uh, look no further than a number of our provincial counterparts that have made no such moves uh, in this direction as of yet um obviously we're a little bit late to the party when you look at uh where Manitoba's been at since June and and Quebec and BC introducing their own systems uh but look at the end of the day um uh, a government issued uh passport system accompanied by a legislative framework that we look forward to learning more about uh is going to prevent the current situation which is you know each individual business forging their own path creating implementing uh, and enforcing their own rules and that's absolutely uh no way to run a royal road and, and something that disproportionately impacts small businesses.
0: Is this going to be... Um, I, everybody wants to feel safe when they go out, for example, when they go to dinner at a restaurant. Is this type of thing, do you anticipate that it'll be... And I know there's, there's hiccups when things get started, but when things get rolling, do you anticipate that this will make things a lot easier for small business owners? Well,
1: if you think about it compared to the current situation... Um, for, I mean, the first thing to say would be, you know, the devil's going to be in the details in terms of ease of implementation. From the Chamber of Commerce's perspective, that's something that we've stressed from the start. Um, and in a well-designed system, um, leveraging the technology that can be easily leveraged, uh, will do just that. But it also avoids the, the current approach, which is basically each individual business uh, trying to come up with their own set of rules uh, and enforcing their own set of rules. And then from a from a consumer or customer standpoint, uh, not knowing what the rules of the road are going to be for uh, each individual establishment that you're going to. And so, you know, this will hopefully provide that desperately needed uh, clarity. Um, and, and leadership that the business community uh, has been looking for on this issue.
0: Uh, have you had much feedback with the government? I know that you know there, there are times you're kind of standing there waving your hand in the back, hello, come and talk to us. Uh, going forward, did you and your organization have a lot of input with the government, or is this something that, that they've done basically with their own caucus and their own people, and, and you kind of stayed out of the conversation?
1: Well, look, we, we've been very vocal about the basic principles uh, that we've been calling for, the need to implement a system, particularly for those non-essential businesses in high-risk settings. You know, we've put forward ideas such as, you know, the a well-designed Pass system could actually be used as an incentive to open up those larger congregate high-risk settings, such as, uh, you know, arenas, uh, theatres, concerts. Um, you know, increased privileges for long-term care homes or hospital visualization, right? So we've put these ideas forward and discussed it with them. Um, but, uh, you, you know, uh, the, the government, of course, has uh, uh, done the work here, uh, we hope, of uh, the mechanics of how this is actually going to look uh, and, and, you know, what technology is going to be used and how.
0: You know, I, I know... Um and our guest on uh, the Bill Kelly show is uh, Daniel Safanya. He's the Vice President of Policy with the Ontario Chamber of Commerce, talking about uh, the uh, rumours that the Premier will be announcing the... Um the announcement today regarding uh the vaccine passport uh, then there of course uh, daniel there are not not trying to be you know playing the bad part here but there will be people who maybe don't care don't know or really have no interest if they're going to a restaurant and they're asked to show a vaccine passport i'm really hoping that those cases become rather minimal because we all need to be kind of steering together in the same uh same direction
1: Absolutely. And I think, you know, one of the important aspects here to flesh out is that uh, a well-designed system will also hopefully incentivize uh, those who are vaccine hesitant uh, to get vaccinated. We've seen this in other jurisdictions that made similar announcements. Uh, Vaccine appointments doubled in Quebec. uh, Quebec, rather, they they spiked in B.C. uh, and France. Uh, There was even a sharp uh, spike in vaccine searches uh, just last Friday here in Ontario when news of a forthcoming Made in Ontario policy leaked. And so, you know, it is an important incentive uh, mechanism. And, you know, it's also not uh, exclusive um, with outreach uh, to those vaccine uh, hesitant communities, uh, empowering, um, you know, local leaders, health officials using mobile clinics, uh, conducting outreach to, to ensure that we are reaching those uh, vaccine hesitant uh, communities so that those instances of uh, unvaccinated people uh, trying to enter a high risk indoor setting um, are few and far in between.
0: Daniel, before we wrap up, I did want to uh, find out because, of course, we've been in this pandemic situation, uh, what now, 17, 18 months, and we heard a lot of uh, really upsetting, uh, heartbreaking stories about businesses that uh, were forced to close for whatever reason. As we are now hopefully starting to kind of uh, have the fear subside, uh, what's the feeling that you are getting from small businesses? Are they now feeling a lot better about their survival than they were, obviously, fifteen. 16, 17 months ago?
1: Well, look, I think it's been it's been a long 17 months for, uh, for many businesses writ large, but particularly those in the sectors that we know have been disproportionately impacted by the COVID-19 crisis. And that is, uh, you know, the service sector, tourism, accommodation, um, and even retail. We know these sectors have been hit hard as they do require uh, more face-to-face contact. And so I think Uh, There was a great deal of concern and apprehension as people were looking at the case counts rising in school learning set to return in September. um, And everyone wanting to go back to normal without another province wide shutdown. Uh, You know, businesses, by and large, see uh, proof of immunization and clarity on workplace policies um, as a way to uh, maintain the current degree of Uh, freedoms that we have and openness in the economy that we have um, while mitigating mitigating against the risk of another uh, lockdown and so uh, you know I think this is uh, the. we hope this afternoon will provide kind of the 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 clarity and the legislative uh, the accompanying legislative uh, backup that's needed here for for businesses to be able to effectively implement this and keep their
0: businesses
1: uh, safe, both for their own employees, but for the patrons uh, who, uh, who come as well.
0: Daniel Zafanyany, Vice President of Policy with the Ontario Chamber of Commerce. We will be uh, listening, uh, obviously, this afternoon to uh, see what the Premier and uh, the Health Minister and the Medical Officer of Health have to say in uh, what is rumored to be the announcement about those vaccine passports. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, have a great Labor Day weekend. Thanks for having me on Ted. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We laugh at those commercials that we see on television about being, you know, back to school and it's the most wonderful time of the year. Well, it is. I know the parents are happy the kids are going back to school, but obviously it's a whole different ball game now. Uh, when the kids get ready to go back to school, what is being done for the kids to keep them safe? Well, Annie Kidder, the executive director of People for Education, says clearly we need to do everything to keep schools open and safe for kids.
1: All of the experts are saying it is vital that we keep schools open, that we, we keep schools. Kids uh, learning in person, and there is a danger that if we don't grapple with this right now, that we'll end up back where we've already been with schools closing, and that is so. Uh, It's bad for kids. It's bad for communities. It's bad for education. And we have to do everything that we can to prevent that. Kids in Ontario already, uh, you know, their schools were closed for longer than any other schools in Canada. And we have to make sure that that in-person learning continues, that it's a choice that families feel comfortable with. And because they know that we've done, you know, everything we can to make sure schools are safe.
0: Well, joining us to talk about this for the next few minutes is a professor with the Ontario Institute for Studies and Education at the U of T, Todd Cunningham, who joins us on The Bill Kelly Show. Todd, good morning. Welcome. Hi, Ted. Thanks for having me on. So what Annie Kidder said about, you know, kids uh, not being in school for a long time, um, I, when you sit down and do the math... Uh, in Ontario, students have been out of classrooms for 26 weeks. We mentioned kids went in, they came back, back and forth, back and forth. That stat to me is mind-boggling, showing how frustrating of a year it's been for everybody.
3: Oh, it sure has. And part of the frustration, too, is every time we do those transitions, starting in person, then going online, and then coming back into person, going back online, it takes about almost two weeks for the kids and the teachers to readjust to the new learning environment. So not only have we had this disruption throughout the year but we've had so much transitioning going on that has also taken away from the quality of education that we have seen over the last
0: 18 months. I know that when you look at uh, some of the numbers uh, students for example and, and and this is a really hard age for them anyway because they're just they've they finished ECE or they finished kindergarten students in grades one and two according to the latest survey found on average eight months to a full year below grade level on reading tasks by the end of the past academic year very important clearly grades one and two that one i think may uh, surprise parents and probably shock them too it, it, it it's
3: Probably does, but it's not surprising. We've known for a very long time that um, over the course of the summer um, before COVID happened, that kids in um, grade one, grade two, that some of them didn't make the same types of gains or hold the same type of learning in literacy and numeracy as other kids. And it really boils down to three main factors. One, does the child have access to materials to allow them to be able to learn how to read and write? Two, is there a home that is promoting literacy and numeracy? And three, does the child have the ability to do do this? For so many students this year over COVID, um, equity issues have really come to the forefront. They don't have enough devices. They don't have um, the the, proper internet. Um, Houses are crowded and and there's not a quiet place for them to work. So they don't have access to the online learning that was going on. Um, Or parents are not able to support them because they're having to work or to look after um, loved ones. Well, and the third piece is that they might have some sort of learning challenge, and so they can't actually engage in that work. So here we have these young students who need to develop these critical academic skills, and for some of them, they just don't have those um, th- those means to be able to do that. So teachers are going to be faced with a greater diversity of students in their classroom. Some students being able to read really well, and other students. Far behind, as the stats
0: show. And uh, something else, too, that uh, we should mention, Todd, is the whole part about um, mental health, and a lot of kids. You know, they really struggled with staying home. Um, You know, if a child has, for example, a learning disability or a learning difficulty, uh, they can't really get that face to face time with the teacher to ask or get that special help. Uh, Being online doesn't help, but that is obviously another part of the puzzle that has to be answered.
3: A, a huge one, and what we see in a lot of our adolescents is the, are how lonely are they are. That this period of the last several months that they felt very isolated, they didn't have safe places to be able to connect with their friends, they didn't have safe places in their homes to actually talk with his, their friends um, in privacy. And so we have a lot of adolescents who are feeling very lonely. And so as they connect again, as we come back together Teachers, educators are going to be really needing to look out for symptoms around mental health, kids who are showing higher levels of depression or anxiety. With their younger students, we're quite worried about separation anxiety. You know, they've been at home with parents for so long and haven't actually been socializing in larger groups of students for a period of time, and now we're going to put them back in. So... Again, not all students are going to be impacted, but there are going to be a greater number of students that we're going to have to look out for around the mental health issues.
0: Our guest is uh, Todd Cunningham, a professor with the Ontario Institute for Studies and Education at the U of T, talking about back to school and making it safe for kids. Uh, Interesting uh, thought here, Todd. Um, I'd like to get your your, uh, thoughts on it. What about the role of teachers in discussing vaccines in class? Because I know that there are going to be kids who said, well, my parents say I shouldn't be vaccinated or they've heard uh, other people saying uh, things like that. Clearly, the teachers have something else on their plate now that they probably didn't know they were going to do. And that is the teachers discussing vaccines in class and uh, and what should be done about that.
3: Yes, and, and that, that's a, a tricky topic, I think, that teachers are going to have to wrestle with. One, we need to give the facts. We need to talk about the facts, about the science that that's out there, and make sure that the facts are well-known. But at the same time, we have to do it in a sensitive way, because there are going to be some families that are making these decisions that they don't want their children to be vaccinated. And we've heard these new ideas about kids va- you know, doing vaccine bullying and stuff like that. We're an inclusive society where we do bring, where we all come to together, and so therefore we need to have places where we can talk about openly about our our thoughts, but at the same time we're not going to directly target or ostracize individuals who have made a different um, choice from us. And we'll continue to look to the leaders on how they are going to provide the different safeguards around um, how to ensure that we all can come together to be able to continue to learn in safe environments.
0: Well, I know one of the things that they talked about with the government is uh, ventilation systems for schools, making them a lot safer. That seems a really, really uh, big task to get all the schools properly ventilated now that, uh, of course, it's starting uh, next week.
3: Yes, and I'm glad I'm not a principal having to try and ensure that all my rooms and my school are well ventilated. That's a a big undertaking that's going on. But again, I think what is the piece that we really need to go back to is making sure that students feel safe in the environments that they are learning. One thing that we know is if the child is feeling very anxious in their environment, they're worried about their safety, they're worried about the safeties of others around them or their parents, then they can't concentrate on the actual learning. So teachers are going to have to do a really good job at being able to listen to their students, hear what their concerns are, and being able to come up with um, plans and solutions so that their students are going to feel safe. The other thing that teachers are going to need to do is also realize that students have been out of school for like kind of 18 months. That so We haven't had a good 18 month of regular schooling that has happened. And so part of this transition back into school is going to need to be re students Two, what it's like to be at school? How do we line up properly? How do we sit down um, at our desks? for a a period of time and do do the work. We can't expect that on day one, they're all going to remember how to do that. We're going to have to take some time to reculturate them to the practices um, of
0: school. And there's something else that I just thought of too, uh, when we talk about, uh, Todd, for the last, uh, well, let's call it 18 months that kids haven't really been in school on a consistent basis. They have uh, spent a lot of time uh, getting digital literacy and going online and getting the information that way. I'm wondering if the, about the adjustment now to go from digital learning, which they did, to go back to actually face-to-face learning in the classroom.
3: Yeah, and I'm hoping that it's not just a, a switch back to the way we used to do things. I hope that we have we can take some of the good examples of online and digital learning that we've had, the ability to access larger amounts of resources, the ability to Teach students about safe web browsing, um, the ability to connect with p- people who are not just in our immediate geographic location, and that we can bring that into our class so that we can have more of a hybrid approach that begins to emerge um, where we can leverage the new technologies that we've been using for the last year um, to be able to support and augment that face to face. But that face to face is still so important for so many students. It is the place where they are able to hear and attend to their teachers, they feel that they're part of a learning community that they, um, are, uh, that they feel supported in and that really promotes their key literacy, numeracy um, abilities. So it's so vital to get them back there.
0: I know that you can't comment on curriculums from different uh, jurisdictions and across the country, but I find it interesting, Todd, that, for example, in PEI, and this will be the second year in a row that they've done that, they are revising part of their curriculum to include content from previous grades. And as we talked about, sometimes kids had a difficulty over the last year. I find it interesting that they're kind of letting kids kind of pick up what they took in the previous uh, uh, year or, or half year.
3: Yeah, and again, this goes into trying to understand the diversity of students that we're coming into. There are definitely going to be students who their literacy, numeracy, and some curriculum knowledge is going to be behind where other students are. Again, not all students are going to be... equally impacted by um, the disruption. And so teachers are going to have to pull on some of our really cool new tools that we have out there called curriculum baseline measure. These are one to five minute tasks that they can do to be able to identify where a student's reading or math writing abilities are, so that they can then differentiate instruction that they're giving. So maybe there are going to be five students who are really at the bottom of the class and and they they really need a lot of support. But there's going to be another maybe five or 10 who have done exceptionally well over the last um, year and and they don't need as much of that instruction from the teacher. So the teachers are going to have to differentiate how much time and, and intensity that they're giving certain students to try and get them all back up to where we would expect them to be in their given grade
0: you know and uh, the one thing about uh, and i'm go back of a certain vintage again i'm i'm a lot older than you, Todd, but i remember how labor day i like but i hate it because i get that knot in my stomach on labor Whoa. day night knowing that school is coming and i'm having that mean teacher mrs baird kerr in grade three at hampton heights knowing what <laughs> awaited me or what i thought awaited me stressful enough getting ready for school uh going into grade one going into grade seven which could be a change going into a uh, grade nine uh i'm really thinking a lot of parents are going to have to have a real close contact with their kids because this could be a really not that we're trying to be a downer here but it could be a real stressful weekend heading into tuesday
3: there's going to be so many mixed emotions coming up this weekend i think as we all have um but definitely for, for children, there, there's going to be a group of students that are out there that parents are going to have to take extra time, really listen to them and hear about what their concerns are and their worries, and work with them to come up with some plans to kind of mitigate what those worries might be. Maybe it's practicing, again, how to tell someone to keep their social distancing. Uh, maybe it's talking about who are the safe people in the school to go to, to be able to talk, uh, talk about their worries um, with. Um, and then there are going to be other students who are just so excited. Excited to be able to see their friends again and be able to run around in the play, the, 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 the yard, and throw a ball, that um, they, they won't be thinking about any of those pieces. But um, definitely, for those who, are, who do have those children who are worried about it, really what we need to do as parents is to listen, not to react, but really listen, validate their concerns, and then provide them, work with them to come up with some solutions to
0: mitigate those concerns. We'll uh, definitely watch uh, the first few days and weeks of school unfold. It's not that far away. Todd Cunningham, professor with the Ontario Institutes for Studies and Education at the U of T. Uh, thank you very much for joining us. Very enlightening, and as we say, school's not that far away. Uh, we'll see what happens as this uh, new school year literally uh, gets underway. Thanks very much for the time. You're welcome. Thanks for the conversation, Ted. And uh, by the way, uh, just so you know, and, and this goes back a long way, and I talk about Mrs. Baird Kerr. God lover, in grade three at Hampton Heights. I almost failed. Back then, they failed kids. I almost failed grade three. So, my gut feeling on Labor Day about Mrs. Baird Kerr, I was right. I'm over it. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The Liberals have unveiled their full campaign platform, giving voters more details on the pledges that they have made. We'll get into that in just a moment. But even before it was released, NDP leader Jugmeet Singh pooh-poohed it, saying the Liberals consistently promise things Canadians will support but never deliver. I want to remind folks, the Liberals have taken this strategy again and again.
3: Why deliver on things when you can just campaign on it anyways? Why get
0: things done? We can just promise it. He made the comments in Montreal where he proposed using federal lands to build uh, affordable housing. Well, joining us for the next few minutes to uh, talk about uh, the plans that have just been released from, uh, they're calling it uh, Team Trudeau, is Christopher Reagan, director of the Max Bell School of Public Policy at McGill University. Christopher, thank you for joining us. Good morning. Thanks for having
4: me, Ted. Nice to be here.
0: So uh, we're going to, uh, you know, as we say, this just got released. So off the top, one of the things that they are promising today. Well, actually, let's go back a little bit here. Um, are you surprised that they are releasing their platform um, as late as they are uh, with 20 days left in the campaign?
4: Well, first of all, I'm no political strategist. Right. I'm an economist. Right. Um, but so, so actually, and very few things surprise us these days in ah. election campaigns. But look, there's 20 days left. That's a long time in federal politics. So uh, I don't think it's particularly surprising, uh, and it could have actually happened later because uh, you, we, as the public, I think, tend to have short memories for things. So I think it makes perfect sense to uh, to release things a little bit later, and it allows you to uh, to fine tune things.
0: Now, the Liberal re-election platform includes $78 billion in new spending, more than three times the direct new revenues promised over the next five years. As we say, uh, we're just getting started on this, but does that surprise you that it's new spending?
4: Well, again, I think for a, for an incumbent government to promise new spending, and for that matter for even an opposition party to promise new spending in an election campaign is hardly novel. Huh. Uh and but, but one of the things that does concern me is that spending promises by any party, but especially by the, the party that happens to be currently in government, uh, spending promises with not clear plans about how to pay for them concerns me, especially in a world where the federal government has just massively increased its public debt by something like, Uh, 18 to 19 percent of national income. That's a massive increase in public debt. And to my, uh, to my liking, I suppose, none of the parties are really discussing, uh, what we should be doing about that public debt and how quickly we should be reducing that budget deficit. I know the conservatives have talked about reducing the, but balancing the budget within 10 years, which strikes me as quite far away and I think a little bit too complacent about high high government debt.
0: You know, it's interesting because yesterday on this program, we talked about the debt and how it's just literally skyrocketing out of control. And the year uh, figure that came up is uh, basically uh, maybe by the year 2070 uh, that the uh, federal debt would be paid off. That's mind boggling to me. I don't understand how how this is going to happen.
4: Well, Ted, I think you're right that it's skyrocketing, but I don't think you're right yet that it's skyrocketing out of control. Uh, I think Government debt can get out of control. I don't think it is yet out of control. But in order to make sure that it doesn't get out of control, you actually have to start controlling it. And and that means you actually have to start having some pretty serious plans or at least discussions about plans about how you're going to reduce that debt-to-GDP ratio. One of the things that, that the current government will say, and, and and it's true, is that interest rates today are far lower than they were back when we previously hit the debt wall in the early 1990s. And so government can handle and service its debt more easily, much more easily than it could before. But interest rates can rise quickly. And if and when they do, then your government debt becomes more of a problem. So I just think that there is a need for a national conversation about this.
0: Well, literally, as we say, the information is, uh, is coming in, Christopher. The liberals say the debt-to-GDP ratio will still be lower than predicted in last spring's federal budget. Um, again, these are words and these are promises. Uh, should we take solace in, in that uh, announcement?
4: Well, lower than predicted last year just means things aren't as bad as they were predicted to be last year. So that, that I guess there's some solace that we can take there. But uh, again, I think it's the longer term issue about where is that government debt going? Are we going to have to raise taxes in order to address it? If so, which taxes? Or maybe we're going to have to reduce other government spending. Uh, you know, government can't do everything. And I think, after we've had a massive increase in government spending and budget deficits and public debt, I think we have to recognize that government just can't do everything, which means we need a discussion about priorities. And maybe it's going to be a bit of tax increase. Maybe it's going to be a a bit of spending cuts. Uh, You know, you can have a very balanced approach to that. But I think what you can't do is just uh, put your head in the sand and pretend that there's not an issue.
0: You know, it's interesting, Christopher, because, again, we talked about this um, on the program yesterday that uh, when people go door to door, when the candidates for whatever party come knocking on your door, if indeed they can do that these days, and we're probably getting into a situation where it's not quite as uh, as it was the last uh, several elections. But, you know, there are three questions that people should be asking. And one of them off the top is, and I'm not sure people are going to ask this, is ask the candidate are they going to raise their taxes that people are paying? I think that's a very legitimate and very fair question. Not sure that a lot of people will be asking that, though.
4: Well, and and I completely agree that it's a fair question. It's a sensible question. Uh, And if they ask, I don't know whether they will ask it, but to me the other question is if they do ask it, what kind of answer will they get? And uh, and again, I'm not sure that any party today has to say we have to raise taxes. I'm not saying that that's absolutely... Uh, 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 required. But what you have to do is recognize that you have a fiscal challenge ahead of you. Uh, I don't mean to 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 suggest that, you know, the sky is falling and that we are looking like Greece looked in 2011. That's right. not the situation. But but if you don't mind the public debt and you don't worry about it at least a little bit and have a plan for it, uh, they have a history of getting out of
0: control. And people I know, Christopher, are sitting at home struggling to make the uh, monthly payments and balance uh, their, uh, if, if you will, the old expression, balance their checkbook. Um, I'm not sure. Um, I know people are frustrated when they see that the government is basically spending more money, a lot more money, than they have. And I would suggest that part of the thing that they're learning is, is the government or governments, are they fiscally responsible?
4: Well, I, I, I think responsibility here would be to at least recognize and talk about the challenges that are in our future. Look, I, I, don't, I don't want to suggest that the government should not have done the spending that it did over the past year. I mean, the pandemic was a, an enormous uh, public health and economic uh, kind of catastrophe for the economy. I think the government actually deserves credit. Uh, for putting together the relief programs that they put together on a large scale and in very short order. So I think they get credit for that. But, but, you know, the pandemic is hopefully coming to an end and those fiscal, uh, relief packages should also be coming to an end. So, you know, the, the two to three hundred billion dollars of extra spending that the government did in a year really should be winding down, not over 10 years, not over five years, but it really should be winding down. Uh, in shorter order, so you've got to you've got to talk about that, in my view, and for for uh, whether it's the incumbent party or the opposition parties to just not talk about it as if it's not an issue. I actually think that is being fiscally irresponsible from all, all of the parties.
0: Christopher, uh, one of the other uh, platforms that came down from the Liberal Party a few minutes ago is a uh, promise. <laughs> Of course, they always use the term promise, and then, you know, things sometimes don't happen. But they are promising to permanently end interest payments on federal student loans. Your thoughts about that?
4: Wow. Okay. So um, so I think student loans are a great idea. We have federally sponsored student loans. There are many, many students out there that that have a difficult time affording tuition, and tuition tends to be rising, not, not stable. So I think it's it's a very good idea to have government student loans. To then have no interest on the student loans is you know, an interest-free loan. That's what it amounts to. And I think, I think you've got to be careful about that. I mean, I think you want to give access to students uh, for financing their education, but I think it's also uh, important for students to recognize that they are, you know, the university actually, or colleges, they are expensive. They take a lot of resources. And so I don't think there's a powerful argument for having interest-free loans. I think there is a much more powerful argument for having an expanded and very accessible student loan program.
0: Christopher, I know that we've uh, kind of put you on the spot with uh, some of the stuff that has uh, come come down the pike the last few minutes, but um, interesting uh, when you break down and people like yourself are obviously uh, a lot more... uh, uh, tune into what's been happening as far as political uh, pundits and promises that are made. I want to talk a little bit about the NDP plan to hike tax on um, heavy emitters. Uh, Jugmeet Singh talked about um, the carbon tax, industrial emissions. People like yourself are saying that the NDP plan really doesn't add up. Can you explain that? Sure.
4: So the... Part of the NDP platform is, uh, and I think you might find in this, this in the green platform as well, is to what they call remove the exemptions that have per- currently been offered to heavy industry. So they claim that, that uh, the carbon tax doesn't really apply to heavy industry and they are exempt from it. And I think that's wrong. I think it's very misleading. There's a, there's a seed of truth in it, though. So there's something very complicated going on here, which is called the output-based pricing system. And it's very geeky, it's very complicated, but it comes down to this idea that if you're heavy industry, so let's think about a cement firm or you're in Hamilton, so a steel-producing firm or a fertilizer-producing firm, these are, the, these are the types of businesses that have very high greenhouse gas emissions. If what you do is you make them pay the carbon price, in an ordinary carbon pricing world, and today the carbon price would be about $40 per ton of emissions, um, then what will happen is that they will reduce their emissions, and that's good. But if they are competing with rivals from a jurisdiction like northern United States without a carbon price, then what will happen is that they will actually lose business to those American rivals, and they will close down shop in Ontario only to be replaced by production in the United States. Total emissions won't fall at all. They will fall in Canada, but those emissions will then simply migrate to where the production is in New York State or Pennsylvania. And what we will bear is the economic cost of that, but globally there will be no benefit in terms of emissions reductions. So this output-based pricing system is a complicated thing that is in place in terms of the, the, the federal government's policy to make sure that we don't that the the, uh, the Canadian firms face the carbon price, but we don't undermine their competitiveness. The goal here, Ted, is not to put the Canadian cement firm out of business. We're trying to get them to reduce emissions by being cleaner, but not by going out of business. And so that's why we have this complicated thing that is an output-based pricing system. And the reason why Jagmeet Singh says that they have exempted The Canadian emitters, uh, which is not true, is that what they're doing is they're charging the Canadian producers the carbon price on their emissions beyond a particular threshold. And Jagmeet Singh is saying, "Oh, well, if they don't have to pay the carbon tax on those first uh, chunk of emissions, then they're exempt." Well, they are exempt for some amount of the emissions, but they're not exempt overall. And if any firm in Canada still produces one more ton of emissions tomorrow, They'll have to pay the full carbon price on it. So Chris, this is a, a very complicated thing, and I apologize if I just lost half of your listeners. No, 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 that's
0: good. Uh, by yeah. the way, by the way, Christopher, just before we wrap up, uh, the beauty of talk radio is we get uh, emails and calls from people, and we we, we have one quick call to kind of tie in. Uh, or right. Actually, it's it's a question that ties in with what we talked about before about uh, the interest rates and the debt ratio and paying back student loans, and the question. Uh, The person uh, who uh, called us in uh, basically said, are the people we pay interest to the same as the people who set the interest rates? You're an economist. The floor is yours.
4: (laughs) Great question. So when the government pays interest on its debt, it's paying that interest to the bond holders. Now, the bond holders of the Canadian government debt are mostly... Um, you know financial institutions, they may be individuals like you and me that we hold government bonds in our portfolio, but almost certainly in our pension fund that we have through our employer, if we have that, uh, there are government bonds that are being held so government the interest payments are overwhelmingly going to um, to let's call it bond holders uh, institutions and people like us. The Bank of Canada is the institution that uh, that has a very heavy influence on interest rates. And the Bank of Canada does hold some of that Canadian government debt, but it doesn't hold the majority of it. So that's
0: my geeky answer. Perfect, and that's a great way to wrap up. Christopher Reagan, the director of the Max Bell School of Public Policy, thank you for joining us. And, and um, you know, I it was funny because when we started the interview, all of a sudden the Trudeau thing came down. It's like, okay, let's, let's throw you in the fire and talk about that. But you delivered, uh, you've, you've uh, given us a lot of great information to uh, chew on, so to speak, as we get ready to go to the polls. Thank you very much for your time. Have yourself a great weekend.
4: Thanks for having me,
0: Chad. Bye-bye. And by the way, uh response is now coming in um, and comments uh, about uh, the plan. We'll have the full story at 11 o'clock uh, with Paul Tippel on CHML News. But um, the Minister of Finance, uh, Christian Freeland, uh, held a news conference and uh, talking about what the Liberals have uh, promised. And it's already continuing. They haven't even finished the news conference. She today right after the news conference, accused the Conservative leader, O'Toole, of cancelling child care. A
1: publicly funded, Canada-wide, early learning and child care system will deliver that same robust growth for all Canadians. But Erin O'Toole's Conservatives have said emphatically that they will rip up these historic agreements, just like Stephen Harper did. That would be a step backwards for Canadian children, a step backwards for Canadian women, and a step backwards for the Canadian economy.
0: Now what he talked about? Uh, it's an 82-page document, but they included 78 billion in new spending. Uh, Justin Trudeau making uh, the update: $10 a day childcare, new mental health transfers to the provinces, climate change, and housing. And he also talked about, of course, one of the big things that everybody's talking about: health. We have a plan to move forward for everyone on health, on housing on child care, on climate. So here's what our plan looks like. Keeping you safe and healthy is job one.
1: It has always been and always will be. That's why we'll make sure you can find a family doctor or a family health team. And while we're at it, we'll make a historic, dedicated investment in mental health care, too.
0: Well, the platform has been unveiled. We'll have a full uh, details on uh, CHML News. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from nine to
2: noon on nine hundred CHML. The Bill Kelly podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to the Bill Kelly Show weekdays from nine till noon on nine hundred CHML.